0: This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from U.S. RSE, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSE Stories. Today I'm joined by Joe Schoonover, who is the CEO and HPC specialist at Fluid Numerics. I first encountered Joe on these interwebs when he made a tutorial for using Singularity Containers with Google Cloud Build, and the timing was really uncanny because I'd helped with the Google Cloud Build Singularity tutorial, and I was like, hey, I I know how to do that. So Joe, I think you might be the first official CEO that I'm chatting with on RSC Stories. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So let's dive right in. Tell us about your early training and what paths you decided to take and how that ended up with you being a CEO.
1: It was kind of a, I guess, a, a long journey through a variety of things. I actually, when I first went to college, applied to FSU's jazz music program <laughs> as a bass player. And there was not really going to be funding for me to do that. And I didn't really want to work long hours. So I transitioned over to engineering and then eventually into applied mathematics. So I did my undergraduate in applied math over there. And then I got invited to work at a fluid dynamics lab at Florida State called the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Institute and got involved in physical oceanography, both doing some observational work. Went out to sea one semester on one of NOAA's ships. Just did a variety of things. And on the lab side, we were working on modeling this experiment called the uh, Differentially Heated Rotating Annulus. We're just trying to model fluid flow around Antarctica to mimic the Antarctic circumpolar current. And then eventually went on to do mid-latitude stuff, modeling the Gulf Stream which is really where I got my start in like doing high performance computing and software development. Took an interest in building out codes to do this thing where you can model reality somewhat realistically. Found it really intriguing and entertaining and and just, I don't know, it's just some sort of comfort I took in it. Finished my PhD in physical oceanography at Florida State back in I think it was 2016 or 2017 at this point. It's kind of blurred because I started a postdoc at Los Alamos sort of during that overlap period when I was finishing up, continuing on doing like climate research and some of the Gulf Stream modeling. But what I kind of started falling into when I was there was everyone was going through this phase of like getting excited about GPU programming and doing multi GPU acceleration. And I found that problem to be kind of interesting, independent of what domain science was happening. I guess having that knack for picking up that new jumping across domains and learning new sciences that way was really intriguing for me. So I gave it one more go after my postdoc at LANL at sticking with the domain sciences. I jumped over to the Space Weather Prediction Center in Boulder, did some work there helping them take code called a IPE, an atmospheric modeling code that was coupled to an ionosphere modeling code to do space weather predictions. The goal for this group was to produce these predictions of like electron content in the atmosphere to, to help pilots navigate or make adjustments to their navigation equipment. My job when I came in there was to take a research code and, and make it production ready for operations, make sure that it's running fast enough so that we're forecasting and not hindcasting. I'll, I'll be honest, you know, when we had the government shutdown in 2018. 2019 being referred to as unessential employee still feeling like all I'm trying to do is not really the science I'm really just trying to help people put together new tech to solve some of these real world problems I really wasn't quite fitting in and really around this time I really started getting involved in hackathons and different training events to really bring people together across all disciplines to Those hackathons eventually led to getting involved in the cloud computing space because running these events, we found it very difficult. You know, when you have a host institution who's providing compute resources, normally they're not so ready to quickly change software they're going to make available just for like a one week or two week event to help people, not necessarily just their institution. So we started working with Google Cloud to set up some infrastructure where we could kind of customize the HPC systems to Meet the needs of all the teams that were coming in. And that slowly turned into a product that we now have out on GCP where folks can just click to deploy and you get you know, what it looks like a traditional HPC environment. You can install your applications and set all this infrastructure up on the fly and then that's built back out. Now people have their infrastructure to work on. We help them do a lot of the application porting, performance tuning, and just learning all the different you know, engineering components that cloud has to offer, bring things together. That's kind of where we've been at now is just working in the space of not just the software applications, but a lot of the infrastructure tooling that's now more readily available with cloud.
0: I can definitely relate to this love for the technology and for working generally to solve problems and not really wanting to answer a specific biological question. And I have some questions that I want to ask you about what you just described. You talked about bringing up sort of an HPC cluster in the cloud. Is that more of an ephemeral thing or is the idea that you actually bring it up and then you maintain it for some set of users?
1: I mean, it really depends on what people want to do. I guess you could think of it as you have like some static resources you always need to get onto an HPC cluster, like you've got a login node. Someone's got an SSH in somewhere there and they're going to interact with a job scheduler. In our case, you know, we've set up something using Slurm. The Slurm job scheduler is pretty common across Department of Energy and a lot of different university systems. Those resources themselves can sit there permanently. And then you have other things typically, you know, some types of file systems to store data, software, things like that. You want to make accessible to people who are going to be using the cluster. And we've definitely been pushing on people this idea of using ephemeral compute nodes. You know, when you submit a job in the background, the scheduler is actually working to do a lot of the resource creation on your behalf to execute your work. And then when your job's done, everything gets torn down automatically. It's a huge benefit rather than standing up, you know, like hundreds of compute nodes and paying that bill all the time. You're really just trying to pay for just the compute that's there. You know, more recently, you know, we've been working with some folks who are like, well, is there a way we could do this without having a login node? Like, what if I just wanted to submit a job directly from my system? We've been playing around with a lot of the engineering components lately on Google Cloud and using a toolkit called Terraform from HashiCorp to put together a scheduler that you can just install like a client on your system. And you can tell it, hey, I want to run something on Google Cloud or Amazon or Azure And here's the number of cores I need, et cetera. And then you kind of give it your job script and any input deck there.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So the target user audience is probably not a big university that already has a bunch of on-prem clusters that they can afford, but it's more likely maybe smaller groups that either can't afford to do that, but still want to be able to scale when they need it. Is, Is that the idea?
1: I'd say that's fair and I'd cer- certainly say the economics of doing this on-prem versus cloud solely if you have on-prem that's the way to go right now it, it's seen as a lot less expensive primarily because a researcher when they put in a grant they're usually putting in like this this overhead percentage they're not really seeing that direct cost so right now the perception I think everyone has is cloud is way more expensive rather than just going through my university I could pay my 50% overhead and that gets me a share on some file system and some limited access to a supercomputer, and then you get some pretty good deals per CPU hour. I mean, we've seen some stuff from various universities that just there's no way a cloud could compete. Where we do see the benefit though, is people wanted to do like hybrid computing. So if you have like a Slurm cluster on premise, you spin up the Slurm cluster in a the cloud, there are ways to connect them and federate the system. So when you have those times where you have those like backlogs of people submitting jobs in the queue, you know, you can use some burst resources in a cloud to keep that backlog down. The hard thing to quantify, and I think a lot of people have trouble wrapping their minds around, is how much time and money are we wasting having researchers interrupt their workflow to basically sit in a queue. I've heard some things like, oh, you know, I have to wait 24, 48 hours for a job to go through. And, you know, I know this is coming a long way from well before my time doing HPC, but 24 to 48 hour interruptions for like debugging software at scale is kind of obnoxious and it can definitely cause some hard to quantify costs just for people just not being able to have that sort of consistent workflows. Particularly folks who are trying to experiment with like GPUs and someone's not going to go out one day and just say, I'm going to buy 50 of these v 100s just to see if my application will work on it. It does give you kind of an in-between to see whether or not your applications will work on newer hardware that your university or or your organization might not already have. But we certainly see the possibility of federated computing filling a need for people who already have on-premise infrastructure.
0: The observation about needing to wait potentially 24 or even more hours just to test something is totally spot on. I, I suppose if you grab a development node, you can get one rather quickly, but if you need like any kind of significant resource, for the centers that I'm familiar with, unless you have actually bought into your own nodes, you have to wait a long time in sort of the normal queue. It's like the free tier of, of a cloud provider. One thing that's on my mind is that this space between cloud and HPC, I've seen a lot of companies local, you know, institutions that work on software, they've really tried to bridge that gap with these hybrid approaches. And at least from what I've seen, nobody's really done it well yet. I've seen several company presentations where they talk about this hybrid thing and you're sort of staring and scratching your head and you're like, yeah, I I get you have nice slides and branding, but what in the heck is this? And give me an example use case. I can't say this for sure, but I feel pretty strongly that there's still huge opportunity to kind of get that space because no one's really done it well yet. I hope that's something that you guys can do.
1: I think we see the same thing you do. There's a lot of talk and like, I would say one-off projects. It's hard to reproduce. And that's where we'd like to be is getting it to a point where it really is a turnkey solution that someone can quickly reproduce for themselves.
0: Cool. So let me go back to a couple of questions that I wanted to ask you about your original description of your life history. <laughs> You mentioned that a postdoc wasn't for you, was it more the fact that you realized, oh my God, I'm not an essential worker and I don't have work right now, or was that sort of the straw that broke the camel's back and you're sort of getting there anyway?
1: The government shutdown and the uh, non-essential worker classification, I took it as a sign that all right, it's time for me to do something. That I have to admit, I might have a little bit of of control issues over what I want to be involved in and what sort of things I want to do, and just having I don't know, someone who's not even connected to my organization at all or my department say, yeah, you're not coming into work today. We don't need you. That definitely pushed me over the edge. This kind of built up, I would go even back as early as grad school and started writing a fluids code as a way to teach myself a lot of the classic approaches to doing computational fluid dynamics. I spent a lot of time just working on this code. It was outside of my RA duties and my TA duties. I remember my advisor telling me, he's like, you know, you're not, you're not supposed to be a software developer, you're supposed to be a researcher. And and I did find that incredibly offensive. That stuck with me. And then as I got into Lannell, that sort of motif of Joe, you're not a developer, you're supposed to be a researcher. It just kept really pinpricking me over the years. And I still ended up finding myself in these positions where it's like, okay, well, you need to do this research, but we don't quite have the tools available to execute it cleanly and reproducibly. And so someone still had to do that work. And so I was always in this state of just being constantly pressured to deliver research while all this other work that was going on was just felt like it wasn't as recognized or appreciated as publishing a paper. It was a culmination of a lot of these things. Now, again, everyone I worked with along the way, I've maintained great relationships with. I'm still working with some of them on some of the research side, but being where I am now, it's definitely become a lot more accepted, the role that I'm having in these projects and it's been able to give me the platform to say, no guys, when I'm in this project, here's the things I'm gonna do if you want me to be a part of it. And it's given me that negotiating ability that I just didn't feel like I had in a traditional role going down that postdoc to a research scientist track where it's really get the grants, get the money. And here it's more like I can figure out how to stand up a business to provide a service back to the community to sort of fund my own personal research efforts that end up in turn contributing back to the community and just kind of build up this snowball as time goes on. I really am just trying to figure out what the heck the community is asking for and figuring out what it is they don't want to do on a lot of that infrastructure software development side where we can pick up the slack.
0: Yeah, that comment you made about what the community is asking for, I think that's probably one of the rare quality of a research software engineer that I think is so important because a lot of the times what people need, they don't know what they need. You have to kind of look at the problems they're they're struggling with and be like, huh, Well, if we had a tool that could do this, maybe you wouldn't need to wait for 48 hours in this queue, for example.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: This term research software engineer, I want to know what it means to you. Do you consider yourself a research software engineer and has that changed over time?
1: I had actually heard this term Actually, it was one of your posts earlier this year. I, I had never really figured a name for it. I've always thought that I was just in this, you know, there's two tracks out there in the world. You've got your domain scientists and you got your computer scientists. And I always felt like somewhere in the middle, there's someone who's helping bridge these gaps. And I think when I read some of your articles on What it is to be a research software engineer, it finally put a term to that general feeling I had or the picture I had in my mind about where I kind of fit in. I definitely think I identify as a research software engineer in the way you describe it. And I think you hit the nail on the head. Like It's so hard to classify who you really are. There's so much gray area we haven't really trailblazed a bit to figure out what these different paths are. I would say a research software engineer is someone who has a bit of the understanding of both the domain and computer science side. They have a desire to to help the two of those different branches that we currently have come together. Definitely, they fall in this category of just solving the puzzle. Not necessarily a particular puzzle, but just any puzzle that just for some reason piques their interest. And I definitely see the notion that we have a hard time describing ourselves to other people currently. And I I don't know if that's more of a reflection of ourselves or the state of research at the moment.
0: I think it's probably a little bit of both. When you have general interests about technology, it's hard to package that in a way where you can tell a story, because, you know, what are you going to tell a story about writing general code for GPUs or for HPC systems? The average person will kind of look at you with their mouth hanging open. I do think that your particular role, because you're CEO is even more rare in the space of research software engineers can you kind of go back a little bit? Because arguably when you decided that being a postdoc wasn't for you, you could have pursued a software engineer-esque role without deciding to start a company. So what were the driving forces that made you say, you know, I I think I'm going to start a company?
1: To be honest, the job listings didn't quite have the problems I wanted to solve. I mean, at the end of the day, I wanted to be able to reserve time to spend on some of my own projects. And there was just, no one was asking for kind of thing I was doing like I think people were expecting oh you know these bigger companies will provide hackathons and training events someone else will train me some some vendor that we'd get a contract with will provide the resources to train us and I didn't like the idea of going to vendors because then you're tied to a specific hardware and you got to quote-unquote drink the juice and just go all in on that. And I definitely wasn't a fan of that. In terms of just working from the other side with a university, I think it really was just a mix of just the past experience of, of, I guess, letting a lot of the comments and a lot of the pressure get to me and ultimately led to the decision. If I can do this on my own and I can pave this path where I can actually work with folks directly on the problems that are interest to them as an independent individual, it still allowed me the free time to run other random things. that I've got going on. I didn't have a great track record for obtaining funding in the traditional routes. So, you know, going for NSF or DOE grants, I figured opening a business would give me a very different path towards generating revenue to fund R&D. And that's certainly what starting this company has done. And we've tried to maintain things at a very lean approach where like, I know I'm a CEO, but I wear a ton of hats throughout the day. I always keep that HPC specialist tag on my title here because I spend a lot of time with clients directly going through a lot of this architecting and engineering. In addition to doing, I would say, the boring but important stuff to run a company, You know, all the accounting making sure that my business partner is in agreement with the directions we're going in and then when we bring on part-time employees just keeping all that going I feel like that's part of my service that I'm giving back to society in a way it is very different than just doing the science but you know you're trying to spin up something to provide other people the possibility of doing something new outside of yourself is once you do that trailblazing, I mean, you're opening up the floodgates for, for something that can really alter a community. And I just didn't see that happening quick enough for me within universities or government. I mean, it's, you got to move the whole beast at once when you're in those ecosystems. Whereas, you know, a small company, I would like to say the quote that sticks with me is from Jurgen Villebrand. He says, no one can stop you. And that is sort of what I've been <laughs> Trying to remind myself of when I'm here is like at any day I can make a decision to change something and really start to put some force behind it with the people that are working alongside me.
0: And to quote Queen, don't stop me now. (laughs) (laughs) That's another good one. You mentioned we and having part time people. What was it like to move from being on a team to being more in a managerial role? A lot of software engineers are forced, if they want to quote, be promoted, to go into more of a managerial role, but that also means getting farther away from building things in code. So how have you dealt with
1: that? So I certainly have not stopped coding. I mean, that's a, a daily thing. What it's, what it's done for me is it's forced me to be a bit more rigorous about sticking to a schedule more than anything. And then that opened up a problem for myself. How do I keep track of all the things I've got to do and not just like issues and feature requests and bugs and for all the products we have out there but just managing you know all the different things i've got going on on my schedule i'm married i do have a personal life and i like to get out and do other things outside of work so and getting into this route rather than being at los alamos or Swipsy, or even when i was in grad school i've definitely gotten a lot more strict about here's my schedule i'm sticking to it I've become a bit more process oriented rather than just kind of doing things on the fly. Really out of necessities, that really wasn't a need at some of these other organizations where you could just come in, you say, All right, I'm spending 50% of my full-time hours on this, 50% on something else, and you just kind of do your work. It's a bit more loose in those settings. When it came to like managing employees, what what I found was interesting is I didn't really magically overnight gain new knowledge, but when you enter that role of a CEO, suddenly People think you know what you're doing (laughs) and you know the answer, you know, the direction to go in, and it's going to keep everyone safe. It's a very, I would say, terrifying thing at times. There are scenarios you just run into where like, oh my God, how am I going to pay for this next month? How am I going to keep this person on? I would say with the coronavirus, particularly, we had a number of live hackathons. We were going to be bringing people together. Like all these had to get canceled and it was just suddenly like, what are we going to do? managing that stress, I think is an ongoing thing. And it was something I anticipated. But after you get outside of these scenarios, what you find is you always find a way to move on. And you learn something new along the way, you improve yourself along the way. And and no matter what, you're still there on the other side of whatever problem you're running into. I'd say if you want to be a CEO and a software engineer, it's doable. It just takes a lot of work.
0: So that sounds like good advice. Someone that has these spidey senses that they want to be a CEO, they should step back and be like, do I have the self-control to manage my time and to work more when I possibly don't want to? Is there any other advice that you would give someone who's interested in starting their own company?
1: Remember to breathe a lot. Because there are going to be times when folks are going to tell you things you don't want to hear and it's okay. Everyone is just trying to figure out how to do this thing of finding what people really want other folks to do. And I think at the end of the day, just remembering to hold your breath for a moment and recenter yourself every time you get yourself into a nasty situation, reground yourself and you'll become more resilient over time.
0: Good advice. Okay. So we're coming up on time and I'll just ask you a few more questions. Aside from COVID, which is like everyone's concern, what are your biggest concerns <laughs> for either research software engineering or HPC in the next three to five years?
1: Ooh, that's a tough one. The most immediate concern for research software engineers specifically is in the current I guess lack of understanding of the value that the research software engineers provide for researchers and other people within their organizations. I think RSEs are incredibly capable people that can solve a variety of problems, not just on the research side, but even on the operational side. Simple things like you want to do timekeeping in a way that's government compliant so that you can get research grants. A lot of these processes right now are incredibly manual, and I think with cloud coming into the scene, no one knows how to charge for cloud, and redesigning accounting systems actually is kind of a big issue at the moment. I'm hoping that people start to see, hey, RSCs are the kind of people that we want tackling these issues as we go towards more of a digital environment, not just for our research, but for our operational components of our institutions. And this certainly does bleed over into HPC, where folks are starting to reevaluate quite a bit across organizations whether or not they want to buy a certain amount of on premise infrastructure versus invest some money into cloud and all these other things. But without proper accounting tools in place, we have no way of measuring the cost and benefits of all this, and we have no way of making informed decisions. And if we don't get these types of boring but important tools in place, We're not going to be able to make any sort of decision about how to pay for all these things and and how to understand whether or not it's actually benefiting an organization.
0: Okay, so last question. And I think you've sort of answered this a little bit already. When you aren't working on something for fluid dynamics, what do you like to do in your spare time?
1: During the winter, I've actually gotten into a lot of backcountry skiing, ski-joring. I don't have a horse, so I have put on a a harness and clip my dog in, and we both hike up together. When we come down, he's more or less pulling me through some of the deeper powder. Since moving to Boulder, I've definitely gotten into running and biking because that's just like apparently what you do in Boulder. Even before that, I have been a climber bouldering. I don't do any of the top roping stuff too much, but I do a lot of bouldering around here. I've been feeding the same sourdough for, I want to say, it's got to be like four or five months now. So I've been into bread baking for a long time and I never really had the patience to do a sourdough. So that's ever since the coronavirus, that's been like my new house pet is feeding the sourdough every day and and making a a new type of bread, (laughs) doing that kind of weird stuff.
0: Morning meditation. Take some breaths. And then feed the sourdough and then Grinch who stole Christmas it up by attaching your dog to a sleigh with a red little nose and he'll think he's a reindeer.
1: See, now I just need the red nose. That'd be perfect.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Joe, it was so wonderful having you on RSC Stories today and hearing about how you balance being a CEO with still being able to code and also how you got there in the first place. I personally am hopeful that there can be more collaborations between what I'll call industry or companies and then academia. So if you ever see opportunity for working with research software engineers, USRC, whatever, shout it to the hills and we have to make this sort of thing happen. Thank you again for coming on the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it.